friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, it's like 9.30 at night. <laughs> like, we don't do this. No, and, and not to sound like a couple of, like, crotchety old people. Speak for yourself. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we, part of the um, benefit of now, you know, living together in the same city and being able to do this in person is a little bit more of a uh, on-the-fly time schedule. And so, <laughs> yeah, this is the latest we've recorded. I'm going to be honest with y'all. Um, we have, like, one episode in the books to go out and we're sitting here going like, okay, we need to bank some shit. And I have family coming into town this week. Family. I have one family member coming into town this weekend, but it will absolutely take up my time. And I would feel shitty about being like, hey, person who drove seven out, sister-in-law of mine yeah. who drove seven hours to come and see us. I'm going to go fuck off for a couple of hours to go record. That would be shitty. So we decided to try and like pack this one in and... I don't know, man. I I have been like forced to stay up late on a couple of occasions recently, and I realize that I am, you know, I'm 32, but I am not 22 anymore. Like, sure. I am not an old man, but like, I can't do the shit I used to do. Well, and you're you're not an early bird per se, but you voluntarily get up at like 4 a.m. multiple days a week. Yes. To go work out. Yes, so. because it's the only time I can do it. Right. And it's like done purely via like rote habit at this point. Mm-hmm. I've had to get up early for like event, like things I've had to actually go and get done. And, you know, Stephanie will drag herself out and I, and you know what? She actually is an early riser. She is someone who's like, oh my God, the sun is up. So I must be up. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's that kind of personality. I force myself to do this shit. If it were up to me, like if I didn't have to deal with work schedules and fitting life in around shit, I would go to bed at like three in the morning and wake up at like 11 or noon and be very content with that life. God, yes. I, I am a self-professed night owl. I, back in the day, had to stop myself from staying up playing video games until 3 in the morning and often failed in that endeavor. So sure. that sounds great to me. I just... I can't do it anymore. Like, <sighs> if I if I go multiple... I, I don't know if this happens to you. Listeners, like, let us know if this is your experience. If I have to stay up late multiple nights in a row, I get sick. Mm-hmm. And I don't get sick that often. Sure. But I, if I if I have, like, two or three nights in a row where I'm up super late, don't get a ton of sleep, I just immediately get sick. And I just know it's happening. And I don't like that. It was never a, like, causality thing, but... Anytime I would get sick, I would think about how, oh, I've been staying up really late, like, the past couple nights. So, mm. I see what you're saying here. Real talk, when you get sick, like, how much of a little bitch are you? I don't feel like I'm much of a little bitch. I am very much more of a, like, fight through it. Not not go in when I'm infectious with the flu or anything, but, like... 
try to do something unless I just absolutely can't. And even then, I don't think I'm a little bitch. I just become a couch baby who watches Star Trek. I was going to say, like, because my thing is I... I've said like a lot during this intro. I don't know why. Um, I would essentially... I demand to eat, like, just ridiculous quantities of really not good for me food just because I'm sitting here going, I need the calories, I'm fighting something. Sure. So it's the only time when I would allow myself to eat like that. But then I'm also very, do like, do not interact with me, leave me be. I'm going to be on the couch or the bed watching shit, reading mm. shit, doing that. Like, I am going to be sitting here with a pack of Oreos and my tablet watching fucking Batman the Animated Series reruns, and that's how it's going to be. Well, bless you. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My dynamic is if I get sick, my wife, whom I love so dearly, assumes this is the end and I am going to die. <laughs> I, was, I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. <laughs> so then Mariah will, will, will dote on me and not let me lift a finger and make anything for me. And I just kind of sit on the couch going like, I could use some soup. Tell you what, I'll make some soup. And she's like, the fuck you are. My favorite thing about this is that I know your wife and I know your marriage. And she doesn't do any of that shit when you're not sick. <laughs> no, it creates a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, because you're the one who cleans up after her most of the time. Yeah. I love her dearly. Yeah. But you are the one who keeps house. Indeed. Speaking of keeping house, we are recording from yours this fine evening. We are. And I am staring at a very excellent looking puzzle that you and your wife are currently in the process of building. Yeah, so like, I never did this shit when I was young. I have to emphasize that. Mm -hmm. Like, I was, not a, I was not much of a puzzle kid. I think I can remember maybe one puzzle my family ever worked on. And I think that might have even just been my mom. Like, she got a puzzle and was like, oh, I'm going to try this out. Never did it again. Mm. Um, or maybe it was my dad. I'm not sure. But been gifted some puzzles here and there and been and then thought, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. We've got a hung puzzle sitting on the wall behind you with various, like, whiskeys. And we thought, okay, let's put this up by the bar cart. Right here, I got a Society6 puzzle, which uh, if any of you are interested in buying puzzles, highly recommend Society6. They do cool-ass puzzles with um, original art from an artist, and they will pay that artist when you buy the puzzle. It's Society6, the number six. Um, check them out. But this is like a thing of old vintage video games and cassette tapes. So I'm looking over at this and going, okay, that's uh, the original cover to Pac-Man, the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze soundtrack, Pitfall, Fucking a bunch of REM albums. I'm going, all right, you know what? Here for it. It, it was a cool-ass puzzle. And it's like a thousand pieces, and we're maybe a third of the way through it. And I love that. I love that for you. I My family was a puzzle family growing up. And any, like, long outing, any week away somewhere, it would not be out of place for my mom to pack a puzzle that then we, as a family, just kind of in idle time would all work on together and and go ahead and do. 
Something that I've noticed you and Stephanie do that I am complete was completely unfamiliar with is the idea of then like brushing glue over the entire thing and sticking a frame on it, which I think is very lovely and creates, you know, it literally creates art, but it's so interesting to me the sense of permanence that creates. So wait, what did you do with puzzles when you finished them? Pack them up, put them on a shelf for two years, and then do them again. What? I, I think that's what most people do with puzzles, not to turn this into a disparaging thing. Well, no, okay. You know what? Admittedly, I don't think I've ever thought that deeply about this, because again, didn't come from a puzzle family. Uh -huh. I did grow up across the street from a kid who did this exact thing. Like, he'd do puzzles, and then he would, like, frame them. I suppose the idea that you would, like, break the puzzle down and then do it again later isn't insane to me. <laughs> the, the look on your face as you say that, though. But I'm just sitting here going, I, I imagine people who do puzzles get a lot of puzzles. So are you ever just, like, perusing your puzzle shelf like it's a bookshelf and just being like, hmm been a long time since i've done this one and you just redo your puzzles i mean not me personally but certainly my mom a little bit yeah my mom sitting there being like oh you know it's been a few years since we did the one that shaped like a knight on a horse and in the image are all these other little sub murals of knights doing jousting type shit Let's bring this one on the trip to Alberta that we're going on. See, now maybe it's just me, but the handful of puzzles that we've actually gotten have been art that is cool enough that we're sitting here going, okay, we would like to actually put this up. Got like a weird blowfish art thing, and I've got my whiskey one that I was just telling you about. I absolutely want to frame this cool music one, and if it goes nowhere else, it can go like near my instruments. I think it's cool. No, sure, and again, not, not to like disparage or mock in any way. I think it's a very cool idea. It was just something that was wholly unfamiliar to me. Oh, I mean, I, I think the imagining that I would have is that if you finish a puzzle and you're not going to like box, like frame it or something, maybe, I don't know. There, there was an old Lisa Bloom thing I read years ago where um, she, she reads a whole lot and her thing is she doesn't keep the books because mm -hmm. she lives in a like tiny New York apartment. So she would read books and then she would gift them to people. Sure. And this was the same person from whom I learned the, the rule of 50 pages. If your book doesn't have you at 50 pages, just don't bother with it anymore because like there's too little time in your lifetime to read books. So like don't that. don't bother with books that can't keep you after 50 pages. So I think maybe the idea is like, okay, I finished this puzzle. I'm going to box it up and I'm going to give it to someone. Mm, okay. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe, maybe that's me being too sentimental. I, I don't know. What do puzzle people do? I am not going to stomp on any opportunity of you being sentimental ever. They are, they are too far <laughs> and few between. Speaking of sentimental, would you like to get started? Yes. Thank you, our dear, sweet, sentimental listeners for bearing with us as we talk about recording times and puzzles and, 
and everything that just falls into our head for the opening 10-ish minutes of any given episode. Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. You've survived the buffer. Um, and now we are going to get into what we usually do in every episode, which is where one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate, and we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. That's right. And this time you've got the love. This time I've got the love. And it's something I know virtually nothing about so you, you probably know only as much as i've anecdotally mentioned on previous episodes of this show all right so I, hit me. I am talking about my love of the sci-fi book series slash tv show the expanse okay and i want to start this off with a completely on the fly question for you alex what was the last series finale of a TV show that you were invested in enough to be watching the live series finale. That I watched it live. That you watched it live. Oh, God. That's... That's gotta be years, probably. Um, you know, I, I remember watching the Friends finale live. And I liked Friends. I always liked Friends, but admittedly, that was more my sister's show than mine. Sure. So I would watch it with her, but I do remember watching that live. Okay. All right. I actually never watched this show very much, but I was interested because it was the finale. I did watch the last episode of Angel <laughs> when that aired. Sure. And I and I will never forget it because it ends on the dumbest line. Which is so Joss Whedon, but it's just Angel being like, they're all of them like, what are we going to do now? Everyone's injured and hurt and L.A. is in flames and there's demons running everywhere. Right. And Angel just goes, I kind of want to slay the dragon. So those are, those are the two answers that I can give where I definitely watched a finale live. I don't know that I could, I can't say that I passionately loved either show. They were more out of convenience but I very rarely kept up with shows long term. That's fair enough. And I'm sitting here realizing if uh, I was talking to Stephanie, for instance, I know that she watched the Game of Thrones finale in real time. In fairness, I was next to her while she watched <laughs> that, but I had headphones on with my tablet and I was watching Rick and Morty. Bless. Uh, I bring up TV finales because on this day of recording, January 14th, 2022, the series finale for The Expanse premiered on Amazon Prime. I carved out a little time of my afternoon to sit down and like give my full undivided, put my phone down attention to this TV show that is ostensibly ending because this has been my favorite television show of the last seven years, easily. This might not mean much to a lot of listeners, but I've watched TV with you. I've watched movies with you. You don't put your phone down for much. <laughs> this is true. All right, so The Expanse, let's get into it. Yeah, so for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, The Expanse started as a series of science fiction novels put out by James S.A. Corey. And James S.A. Corey is actually the pen name of a pair of authors, Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. I think okay. I've mentioned on the show a great while back at this point, the two of them were apprentices and like assistants for George R. R. Martin. 
I think this sounds familiar, yes. And The Expanse, the quickest way to tell anybody what this show is, is, oh, it's Game of Thrones in space. Which is a very apt comparison right down to the, like, overwhelming horde of blue-eyed zombies that are the secret true big bad while you have all this inner politic personal war and humanity fighting each other okay i i have to i have to interject here you love building goddamn the sci-fi derivation of warhammer yeah and now you're talking about the sci-fi derivation of game of thrones I mean, I'm a massive, massive sci-fi nerd. One of my earliest memories is sitting on my living room floor as Star Trek Next Generation played. So this is like, we're 80 episodes in, and apparently Alex is just realizing this about me. Dear listeners, this is a core component of who I am. Oh, God, I love you. Please continue. So The Expanse is a series of uh, books that is, it essentially boils down to Game of Thrones in space. Now, one thing that the series has above Game of Thrones is it has actually ended, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's ended, started and ended in the time it's taken George R. R. Martin to continuously fail to get the sixth book off the ground. So these guys, maybe it's the fact that they work in pairs, at least we're able to stick to a fucking punchline. Mm. Um, but it's a it's a very beloved and critically acclaimed sci-fi series. The original book, Leviathan Wakes, won a Hugo Award. Mm-hmm. The series was nominated for a second Hugo Award itself. Yes, I was gifted Leviathan Wakes by a friend of the show, uh, Andy Shapazian. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I haven't read it yet, but it's on the shelf. I love you, Andy, but um, sorry, I've not gotten to that one yet. Sharpie, when you listen to this episode, inevitably, I am down to talk about The Expanse for as long as you are down to talk <laughs> about The Expanse. Um, and um, so the books originally came out in 2011. The last book, the finale, came out in 2021. So they were able to wrap up. Uh, let me just check here. Do, 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 do. Nine books in ten years, which is a pretty good clip. Okay. Did they... So, so they did the entire series? Yes. Okay. I might be confusing this with another series. You were thinking was... of The Wheel of Time, where yes. Robert Jordan died after what was like the 15th book. No, no. Um, I am thinking... I, I, had, I think I had heard that there was a sci-fi series that had like been canceled recently like a couple of books shy of when it would have completed and i i'm trying to remember what it was anyway ignore me please continue <laughs> um and the the novels quickly were converted with the blessing of the original writers into a tv show which is how I actually like first discovered The Expanse. So The Expanse, the TV show, premiered in 2015 and is loosely, but a lot less loosely than some properties, you know, a, a retelling of the book series. Okay. Now they do what any television show does where they'll take three characters from the books and amalgamate them into one character for the show. But by and large, the same things happen. The same people make sure that those things happen. This isn't um, one of those shows where it's kind of in name only and then goes on to have a bunch of critical acclaim. Okay. 
And this show, part of the reason I loved it so much and tying again into what a goddamn sci-fi nerd I am, one of my, we were talking about this the other day and I didn't mention, I, I didn't think about this at the time. One of the shows that made me the person I am today is a little gem called Battlestar Galactica. I'm familiar with Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I never got into it, but I knew Battlestar fanatics and heard enough about the lore to comprehend, but yeah. it was never it was never one of my series. So say we all. So say we all. So say we all. So say we all. Sure, and that's perfectly fine. I know you're not the sci-fi guy or the fantasy guy very much. As a sci-fi nerd, I will stake my flag in the ground. Battlestar Galactica is one of the greatest science fiction TV shows of all time. And The Expanse was the first show in a good long while that felt exactly like that. In terms of scope, in terms of like style. There's this thing that as far as I can tell, Battlestar kind of invented that I'm going to call grunge sci-fi it's science fiction it's hard science fiction and yet it takes a look at humanity i use finger quotes because sometimes they're not technically human and puts a lens on real human issues and the concept of being in a refugee situation or just being in like Something, some some sort of scenario, some sort of stakes where it's science fiction, but it's dirty. People mm. are grimy. People are not doing well. It is not the pressed suit, clean, Federation, Star Trek science fiction. I was going to say, like, if, if, I can, if I can push back on this, I feel like a lot of science fiction is grimy. Star Trek is, at the end of the day, it doesn't fit cleanly into this binary, and I'm, I don't want to pretend that it does. Sure. But for ease of terms, Star Trek is a sci-fi utopia. True. How much fucking sci-fi dystopia are we familiar with? And even beyond sci-fi dystopia, because I would not call... The Fifth Element, a sci-fi dystopia, at least as far as its world building is concerned, but it is grimy as fuck. You know what? That's a very fair point. Even I'll go ahead and say Star Wars. You know, Tatooine and, and... Star Wars isn't sci-fi. Star Wars is <laughs> Star Wars is fantasy in space. Let's just be honest. I will not argue that point at all. I say this as a diehard Star Wars fan. I will never pretend that Star Wars should be given a science fiction label for anything other than the fact that it has spaceships and lasers. Fair enough. I I'm going to create a smaller box here. It th There is a string of TV shows that the first time I noticed it was Battlestar, mm -hmm. where specifically it's television, it's long form, and it's like, it's not Earth as we know it gets dirty it's in Battlestar Galactica's case a random series of technically alien planets that humans kind of live on but it's in the far past there's a show I enjoy called the 100 which is set like thousands of years in Earth's future and it manages to do the same sort of sci-fi grunge mm -hmm. and then you have the expanse which takes place roughly 
a thousand years ish in our future mm-hmm. um, and and fits in this bubble and the other thing it manages to do I don't just like it because it's like sci-fi and dirty that would be a weird <laughs> metric eh. but it does it well it has a compelling story to tell it starts as a sort of like closed off pseudo detective space noir novel and then manages to branch off into stories of intergalactic war and inhabiting an alien colony where all of a sudden random alien shit on the planet starts wanting to kill you and goes into like just the biggest scale war possible in its universe Mm -hmm. and it tells all of these stories seamlessly and very well The world of the Expanse is a world where you have Earth, a colonized Mars, and then what is known as the Belt. And the Belt is a just hundreds of colonies with millions of people who live beyond the asteroid belt that lies beyond Mars. Oye, Beltalada, listen up. This is your captain. And it instantly creates this three-tiered class system where humans are like the originals and the opulent and the ones who are ostensibly in charge. Mars is its own separate country and is this highly militaristic, but it's got a chip on its shoulder because it'll never be Earth Mm kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And then you have everyone in the belt whose lives basically wind up just being a series of getting fucked by Earth or fucked by Mars, take your pick, Mm. until they inevitably rise up and revolt and create a galactic civil war. Okay. At the same time, there's alien space zombies. I mean, alien space... (sighs) That is the most Game of Thrones-y bit. It it truly is, down to the fact that they make such a point about how, like, oh yeah, their eyes glow blue. And it's just, it it is, it is so incredibly derivative of the White Walkers that I actually come back around and love it just Mm. by what an unabashed stealing of the idea it is. So, I want to, I want to go back to something that you said somewhat casually but i i kind of want to probe it because uh you're, you've given me the premise of the world i assume that like game of thrones there's too many fucking characters for you to give like an easy star wars-esque synopsis um um a star wars-esque yes i mean the show does a really good job of kind of like highlighting no more than about 10 different people that's still way more than than can easily be like synthesized here i'll give you that but the point that i'm interested in here is you talk about this essentially being hard sci-fi but grungy Mm. talk to me about the hard sci-fi of this versus the let's be frank, soft sci-fi of something like a Star Wars, Alien, The Fifth Element. Sure. These things that very much, like, they fit a sci-fi mold. I think of, when I think of soft sci-fi, I actually think of Alien, first and foremost, because there's nothing, in, other than the fact that it's a spaceship and an alien monster, it is 
any haunted house monster movie. Right. And so, for me, it is a soft sci-fi movie. You have technology involved that does not exist in real life, but it's effectively a magic fucking wand that doesn't do that much for the plot. Sure. So talk to me about the hard sci-fi of this, knowing that I'm not... Uh, I, I am someone who enjoys my sci-fi, but I've never like existed under the pretense that I am a hard sci-fi person. Absolutely. And I will say the books get into it a lot more, and I'll touch on that a little bit. But basically, the, the whole point is so much stuff is thought out to a logical extent where it isn't in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I think about one of my favorite Futurama lines, thank God they invented magic. Yeah. Um, Life got a lot easier after they invented magic in the 18th century. Exactly. Um, in The Expanse, they make a huge point, especially in the books... Of like, okay, we need to go to this space station on the moon of Ceres. It's going to take us like five fucking weeks going at the speed of light to even get there. And just about nothing is going to happen in the meantime. Mm -hmm. So we'll check back in on these characters in five fucking weeks. Mm -hmm. They create a faster than light technology and then go into having the story about the man who invented it was trying to create such a thing, but stumbled upon the invention by accident, and as such, had no way of turning his faster-than-light-speed drive off, mm-hmm. and basically just flew off into the cosmos in until he died. It does a lot of stuff of like, okay, we have hard plastic munitions because metal will go through the metal of the ship and create a hole and kill everybody, and we don't want that. Mm. Um, And there's just a lot of, like, technology is thought out in a way that you can sit there and go, okay, I can see how, given enough time, this could be an inventable thing. They They go into the physics. They go into, like... The minutia of the science of having a like hydroponic field on one of the moons of Saturn and making a whole big deal about how, oh yeah, no, we have to pump in like five times the amount of solar radiation just to make these plants even grow. It's it's at least thought out. And then the magical sci-fi zombies are this giant monkey wrench that gets thrown into the whole thing because the whole narrative hook is we discover this goop that they call the proto-molecule that just does whatever the fuck it wants. It does not follow these these hard sci-fi lines. Mm -hmm. If you feed it to a human, it creates a space zombie. Mm -hmm. If you leave it alone on a ship, it grows a sentience and eventually takes over the ship. That kind of... Stuff where there's then this clear delineation of like, here's the stuff that's possible, here's the stuff that's clearly not. And because we spent such a long time going to what is possible, the not becomes all the more compelling and terrifying. Hmm. Um, Going back to Battlestar Galactica, I think about how that's a show that was essentially about an aircraft carrier in space. And they made this whole big thing of like, people would hand each other pads of paper and use phones with like cords and hard phone lines. Mm -hmm. And that aesthetic is something I very much appreciate. Hmm. Okay. I'm here for this. 
So I'm listening to you and I'm you ever have that thing where like something you heard recently feels like it intersects with something you're talking about now? Oh sure. So I was listening to um a podcast I think it was it was earlier this week. Um but they were talking about um certain types of science fiction. And they referenced a quote by the science fiction writer Frederick Pohl, who I don't know if you've heard of Frederick Pohl or not. He's he's kind of more early 20th century sci-fi. Interesting writer, little dry. Um, But he had a quote where he said, a good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, but the traffic jam. Mm. I think about that quote and I've been masticating on that quote for like ever since I heard it because it is it, it is this notion that the more interesting part of a science fiction story is not the hard sci-fi shit. It's not the okay we have plastic bullets because metal would pierce the hull. Like that's don't get me wrong as someone who like will look at a movie or read a book and just kind of go okay I know I know enough to know here's where that is fucked up and that can sometimes take me out of it. Um, the good good science fiction is about the humanity side of things. Yeah. There is a, there is a fascinating, absurd, I mean, cynicism almost in kind of going, you can have faster than light travel and we still have a tiered colony system where Mars is like, yeah, but like, fuck Earth, really? Yeah. And and there's something very human about that. And I think therein lies the reason to actually be hooked. You know, the thing that keeps this different from any random series of sci-fi pulp novels is, yes, it's about all this fantastical shit, but it's also about all this inner politics shit and it's a lot of human problems that we still work through and and have issue with today and imagining yeah in a thousand years we'll still be doing the same shit we'll still be screwing each other over resources and screwing the people who gave us the resources harder than we screw anyone else like we're humans this is how we do so so i know we're coming up on a point where we probably need to roll over through this topic but i do want to ask for one more point for from you because you do specifically your topic is the show the expanse how many seasons is it so it is six seasons you've watched them all i have watched every yeah okay so if someone is interested in checking this out it's on amazon prime i you said yes Okay. What if if you were gonna like suggest someone watch, I don't know, the first couple of episodes, do you have something in episode one or two or three where you were like, okay, I just need you to get to this part. This is my hook for you. Mm. Think back to the beginning of the series. It doesn't have to hard be it in the first couple of episodes. But if possible, what is what is your hook? Because for most people, like Game of Thrones, it's the end of that first episode. Sure. It wasn't the hook for me, but I understand why it was a hook for a lot of people. So what is your hook in that first 
let's say the first half of the first season where you're like, this is the moment I want you to see so that you fall in love with this the way that I fell in love with this. Mm, fascinating. Okay. That's such a fascinating thing because honestly, thinking about the entire length of the show, there's so much stuff that I'm sitting here being like, oh, in season four, oh, in season five, like I'll, I'll go ahead and say this doesn't answer your question, but one of the most amazing sequences of the show is in season five. There's this little spider robot tank thing that a bunch of humans are trying to beat and it just it doesn't even kill them all but it is just unstoppable because it's a robot spider tank and it's amazing but to answer your question i need people to sit through the first four episodes okay. and I, I think this is actually at the end of episode three our our band of heroes and our well-meaning protagonist are captured and interrogated by a martian ship and in the middle of that happening other unknown forces attack this martian ship and there is a switch that goes in the martian's head of okay we don't know what you were doing but we're not letting anybody fucking kill you let's get you back on your ship let's like do this and an entire crew of dedicated martian commandos fights and dies to get our heroes back on their ship and it is compelling it is a very well done action sequence and creates i, I think kind of sums up a lot of the tone of the show of balancing good action with something you care about with something you completely didn't expect hmm okay that and so I'll, I'll just wrap up the cast is fucking amazing i wouldn't love the show as much without the cast and the biggest hook is the cast you've got thomas jane as this belter like chip on his shoulder drunk detective who finds a reason to start giving a shit which is a classic trope but he plays it very well mm. um, steven Strait, who's an actor i really like and this is the show that he like kind of got his shot uh, it's mm. got chad l coleman from the wire and the walking dead and maybe one of the most iconic voices for an actor somebody doesn't know is shora agdashlu she has this, she sounds like she smokes 10 packs before she gets out of bed. <laughs> that gravelly voiced woman you're hearing, that's who it is. And please let them know that if they can't, I will rain hellfire down on them all. And, and she is absolutely amazing. The whole cast is amazing. This is a show that the finale was surprisingly good. They adapted six of the nine books picked a moment to then shut the door on the TV show, but leave this possibility that Jeff Bezos could resurrect this and say, no, I want three more seasons and they can make it. Um, so many sci-fi shows, so many big shows in general end in disappointment. Mm -hmm. Nobody liked the season finale of Lost. Mm -hmm. I will admit the season finale of Battlestar Galactica is deeply flawed. Mm -hmm. The season finale of The Expanse the series finale of The Expanse was something that left me going, I'm sad to see this go, but this is the best possible way it could have went. Mm. And so that absolutely clearly mattered a lot to me because you texted me about recording about 20 minutes later and I was like, I know what I'm going to talk about. 
So, if you are at all a sci-fi nerd, or if for some reason you're not a sci-fi nerd, but you're willing to go out on a limb for me, <laughs> The Expanse on Amazon Prime is very much worth your time. All right. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I'm going to watch it, but um, I am happy to hear you talk about a show with a conclusion that gave you so much satisfaction and joy. And you know what? I like that it is a show that, as far as I know, like, I've heard people talk about it, but it has not entered the public discourse in a huge way. And I always like the let's highlight something that's not getting a ton of attention. You know what? This is what Firefly could have been. That's my final word. I will leave you there. All right. Shall we move on? Absolutely, because you, I, I had no forewarning about your topic. You just threw it on me after I had set up the microphone as like, yeah, I'm going to talk about hating this, and I am fascinated. I like to fascinate you. So as I always love to do, uh, Andy, I'm going to ask you a very basic question. And my question comes with a certain number of, um, you know, informed assumptions uh, you and I both grew up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the suburb you lived in when I lived there, like we were down the street from each other. And you had one of these, I had one of these. I'm, I'm assuming that it was something you had to deal with. So, Andy, tell me your, tell me what relationship you had, if any, to the lawns that were on the properties that you grew up in or spent your time in, in your youth and adolescence? So I have what I feel like is a very fond memory of like being a little kid Mm -hmm. and lawns. Okay. I straight up absolutely spent more than an afternoon just lying in either my backyard or my front lawn just looking at clouds and thinking fucking eight-year-old thoughts and picking up a rock and looking at the bugs under the rock and enjoying that. Um, I am trying to remember if I ever had to mow the lawn. And the fact that I am trying to remember tells me you no more than a handful of times, yeah, if, if you, ever. If you don't remember mowing the lawn, you don't have to mow the lawn that fucking often. Yeah. Well, I will say, so I lived in Minnesota for a year before moving to Orlando, where we were down the street from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And our house in Minnesota was admittedly fucking enormous and came with a fucking enormous front and backyard. And that was the one time where my dad, in the thought that we were going to live there for more than a year, became the guy with a John Deere tractor lawnmower. And then spending one Saturday a month riding around on the riding mower for the fucking, like, half acre of backyard that we had. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, God, I hate it so much. Oh, I appreciate your answer there. Um, I can't say that I had, like a fond connection to the lawns of my youth. I also lounged around outside and, you know, fucked off with my friends, played soccer in the backyard or, 
um, you know, what have you. Uh, I am actually, I, I have discovered a little bit allergic to grass. Most forms mm, of grass, they make sure. you kind of itchy. So there were some limitations there. And I did mow my family lawn when I got to a certain age. And that was a chore that was whatever. It wasn't the worst. It wasn't the best. I, I Any chore that I could throw in my headphones and blast shit into my ears while doing was a little bit better. But sure. I appreciate that statement. And listeners, I, I fully believe that you read the title and you're going to be like, what the fuck is Alex talking about? He hates lawns i'm wondering the same thing listeners okay so I, I i promise i have an angle but i'm gonna need to take you on a little bit of a journey so i appreciate you andy i appreciate you sharing that suburban upbringing and any of you who lived in the suburbs you're familiar with this upbringing you're familiar with the fact that you had a fucking lawn in your front and backyard mm -hmm. maybe it needed mowing maybe it didn't who's who's to say um, maybe you were one of those people who like got someone to actually mow your lawns for you. So, what do you know about the history of lawns, Andy? Oh, I don't love the way you just asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, shit, man. I don't think I know anything about the history of lawns. I've just always kind of assumed in an innocuous way that like, as we moved westward... We created the suburb as a thing and decided, oh, this isn't going to be an apartment building. We'll spread out a bunch of houses and fuck it. We'll give them some lawns. So lawns date back to the grassed enclosures of early medieval settlements. Okay. So let's be clear about what we're talking about here. When I talk about lawns, I'm not just talking about grass in general, grass as a plant. When I say lawns, I mean pre-planned, soil-covered land planted with grasses and maintained the way that the lawns of our homes, when we were growing up, the way that the lawns of our parks are typically maintained. Mm. I'm not talking about the grass. I'm not talking about anything along those lines. Okay. Now, in the, like, in medieval Europe, you generally had open expanses of various flora throughout your individual regions. And in medieval times, the aristocracy began placing an incredible value over these open expanses of low grasses to the point where they started fencing them off. They started becoming part of the estates. Mm -hmm. And it became, in, those, in that period of time, a sign of your status to have... Very well maintained, very well manicured lawns uh -huh. for your country estates. What is that fucking face you're giving me? This is going to turn into racism, isn't it? You know what? Surprisingly not. Oh, okay. All right. I'm back in. 
Oh, what? You were gonna you were gonna opt out when you thought it was about racism? Real <laughs> nice, white boy. So this would continue onward. Um, if you if any of you have ever like done any work in the landscaping field or anything about that, you might have heard the term English law. English lawn is the fancy term for the types of lawns that you and I grew up with, Andy. They okay. are residential, on a particular property, set up kind of lawns. And they would, around the 17th, 18th century, there became this idea, um, especially as parks building became a thing, of creating spaces for social gathering with lawns that were also walkable. You'd get something like sidewalks, you'd get walkable areas there. And there became this idea that these lawns, which are so pretty for the aristocracy, deserve to deserve their place in general social life because they are so damn aesthetically pleasing, right? Yes, right. You look so worried. I am so worried. <laughs> Uh, so by the time you get to the 19th century, you get to uh, about 1830, when a man named Edwin Beard Budding, which I'm not going to, you don't need to remember that, but I just think it's a funny name, Edwin Beard Budding, Fair. invented the first lawnmower. And with the invention of the lawnmower, you had a real lessening of the labor that it took to maintain a lawn. Mm-hmm. So before that, to maintain a lawn, you would have to have the resources of either a municipality for the parks or an aristocracy. You'd have to employ people to do all of this fine manicuring, to do all of this nice keeping everything together. Sure. Then you get the lawnmower. And it's not that it's a cheap piece of equipment. But it is something that makes it so that people of some means are suddenly able to have this thing that previously was only reserved for the wealthy or only available in large municipal spaces like parks. Mm. So while your working class person might not be able to afford to maintain a lawn, your doctors could. Your teachers, your, sure. your people of the, your lawyers, your people of the middle class. The, I was about to say, the building of the middle class and kind of like setting up a visual cue, which, I mean, also you can make the argument of suburbia in general. Exactly. Which brings us to the mid-20th century in the United States. Okay. Post-war, GI Bill. We've got these nice, beautiful, segregated suburbs. This you said a, it wasn't going to get racist. I said it wasn't going to be about race. <laughs> but racism's going to be in there. I'm talking about America. Right, fair enough. So you get to that period of time. And there is a huge proliferation of lawns amongst the suburban expansion that happens in the U.S., and I'm not going to get into the suburban expansion of the U.S. That's going to be reserved for the future day where I finally decide I'm going to talk about gentrification on this podcast. Bring it. Too big a topic for right now. But we're talking about lawns right now. Andy, what is the biggest monocrop in the entire 
entirety of the United States? Oh, God. Um, tobacco, corn, grass. grass? Uh, I should have... So I should have used context clues. It's grass. We are a monocrop culture. We subsidize corn and we subsidize soy mm-hmm. in really disgusting ways that have truly led to horrible things for the environment of our soil, for the health of our people. But the biggest monocrop in the United States is fucking grass. Do you know where Kentucky bluegrass is from? Not Kentucky. The Middle East. Oh, come on. We imported it because we decided that it looked nice. Mm. It is an invasive species Ah, in the United States. Okay. And it is considered, quite possibly, the most desirable grass in the entirety of the United States. Now, and I don't want to let the United States off easy. It's not like other countries don't have this fucking issue. But it is a particularly United States-based issue with the way that we have crafted suburban culture. Sure. I fucking hate lawns, Andy. Because they are legitimately bad for us. And I don't just say that as someone who is allergic to it. I say that as someone who is willing to acknowledge that, just, just, just to give you this number, between 50 and 70% of residential water usage in this country is spent on lawn care. Mm, okay. Not on drinking water, not on plumbing. On fucking lawn care. You and I both live in apartment complexes. Pretty sure both of our apartment complexes have goddamn sprinklers. Yep, and they charge us for it. Yeah. The fact that there are water insecure people in this goddamn country, and we're spending 50 to 70% of our water on maintaining invasive species, mm. is something that pisses me off greatly. And I feel like not enough people are mad about it. Like, I've been thinking about this topic for a minute. And it's something that, as I have learned more about, has given me so much rage. You've spent some time in on, on the western side of the United States, yes? Yeah, indeed. What part of California did you live in? I mean, I I lived in the Bay Area for all of a year. Okay. I have family that um, lived in San Francisco and more family that lived in San Jose and family that lives in Yosemite. Okay. So it's not crazy for me to assume that you've spent a little bit of time in the deserts. Um, Not living there, but you visited. Honestly, not really. No? No. For some reason, I thought San Jose was still in the more desertous region. No, San Jose is like nestled between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. It is the bay. I don't know shit about California geography. (laughs) (laughs) I remember um, I, I spent a very, very brief amount of time, like literally a weekend, out in the Arizona area. And 
I remember looking at the general landscape out there, and it's fucking gorgeous. It is exceedingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. I was there for a wedding. And while I was there, um, I, I visited Phoenix, visited Tucson. Um, while there and not, like, attending this wedding, you know, we took a hike out in the desert mountains. Mm. Not, not mountains, the, the hills. In the desertous area. And it's some beautiful flora out there. Truly. Like, I, I was sitting here, like, I don't, I don't typically go for the aesthetics of this kind of thing. But I was really, really impressed with how it looked. I thought it was really gorgeous and then i went to this fucking wedding <laughs> uh-huh and they had a beautifully green lawn on this wedding venue sure how do you get grass like that in the fucking desert andrew you fight the will of god in the natural order to make sure it is there. Oh my god, he's like standing on the sun! This city should not exist. It is a monument to man's arrogance. <sighs> and that's the thing, dude. Like, depending on where you live in the United States, the amount of resources that it takes to give this same grass that you and I to differing degrees mode in florida <laughs> don't get better on me now i'm so bitter to get that same kind of grass in florida to get it in era fucking zona is an abomination it is a misuse of resources mm, i see it is and and, and Here's the thing, like, I can sit here and I can talk about the environmental impact of using all of that water. I like to think my 50 to 70% statistic gets that point across. I can sit here and talk about the um, ecological fallout that comes from things like fertilizers and pesticides on lawns. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be honest, I didn't do nearly as much research on that. But the fact of the matter is, it is a thing. All of us are familiar with it. Like, God, I remember having, a ha like, my parents needing to call an exterminator because we had infestations of ant mounds on our lawns. And I'm sitting here going like, okay, so they're going to spray a bunch of poison on these ant mounds. I feel like the ant mounds should get to be there. Like, you're not going to make ants not exist. You're just going to try and get them away from this particular lawn. They're going to go somewhere. But it's, it's, I, I can sit here and I can talk about the fallout of that, especially because we were right by a couple of ponds that supported fish sure. and ducks yeah. and cranes. And I'm sitting here going like, aren't cranes a protected species in Florida? And they're spraying this shit right next to them? You are making me remember a whole lot of times that I was told as a kid, oh no, don't go on there. See the flag? They just put the poison on it. Right there. Right there. So I can talk about all of that. And I, I, I want to trust my audience. I want to trust our audience. I want to sit here and go, all right, y'all probably are familiar with that side of things. Mm -hmm. But again, the fact that, or, and you know what, I can even say this, I can bring it back to this monoculture side of things. The fact that we put 
that 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 the that the crop that we cultivate and make no mistake grass is a crop just because you don't fucking eat it does not mean that it is not cultivated as a crop sure the fact that we get this in this format that we spend these resources that we buy it i think of the episode of king of the hill where hank invests in all of this raleigh saint augustine <laughs> to plant on his front yard because his lawn fucking matters that much to him yeah that he needs it to be this pristine beautiful thing when he lives in arlen texas which yes is a fictional city in texas but it does not change the fact that there are multiple scenes of them driving right outside of arlen and it's fucking desert The fact that we put all of that to grow grass in the desert, I can talk about all of that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the proliferation of this infestation crop. But the thing that I think really is the core of my hate is that we do all of this, especially in the United States, for the aesthetic. Yeah. I don't need to talk about racism, Andy. I can talk about how much I fucking hate the aesthetic. Because that Arizona landscape was beautiful. Have you ever, like, driven by undeveloped Florida areas? How much of that is grass? Next to none of it, it is swamp. It is swamp. I was just about to, like, point out, for anyone who doesn't realize it, like, Disney, Disneyland, Disney World, any of the Disneys, really, but the one in Florida especially, like, there is nothing about that landscape that is natural. Mm-mm. Not even the water in the lakes. Mm-mm. Nope. And, but the, here's the thing. You drive by that swampland, and... Is it ugly? It's not ugly. You can project an ugliness to it, but it's not inherently ugly. Sure. Now, I'm not necessarily sitting here and saying that, you know, my parents' house, your parents' house, there in that Florida suburb, is abominable because it was built there. That's a different argument. Like, expansion of the suburbs, again, totally different situation. But there is beautiful Florida flora to put out there. There is, it, it, you know, here in here in North Carolina, you know, we we see we we drive by these grassy lawns all the time. But we've also driven out to the Parkway, you and I, yeah. and you've seen what natural landscape looks like, untouched landscape looks like in North Carolina. Would that look so ugly? In front of a house? No, and I mean, shit, man. The most expensive goddamn houses in Asheville are up on the mountain. Yeah. They don't have lawns. Some of them do, and I guess that's the problem. Exactly. That is my (laughs) fucking point. It's like you step right outside the lawn, and you see what actual North Carolina looks like. But then you go inside the gates, and it's fucking Kentucky bluegrass. Which is from the Middle East. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like... It's, it's, it boggles my mind that we, 
want to embrace this beautiful regionality of the different places that we've lived. I was born in New Jersey. It's the garden state, literally. Mm -hmm. And yes, it doesn't get that image because everyone just thinks of Jersey City and Hoboken and Camden and all the heavy industry sections. Sure. Or they think of Cherry Hill, where all the rich motherfuckers retire to. Mm. But they don't think about that middle section that is actually very beautiful. It's filled with flowers. It's filled with this gorgeous landscape. And you're telling me you can't put that in front of your fucking house. <laughs> then you won't win the best lawn competition. Which is a thing we did in the 70s. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that was some sh like. Honey, I think the homeowners association where our parents lived did that for a while. Like, yeah. that is that is just shit. And and you know what? I I can sit here and I can talk about how my parents' homeowners association that there was one particularly dry season where they had some dry patches in their lawn and they got fucking written up by the homeowners association. It was like, yeah, if you get too many of these write ups, we can force you to move. Homeowners associations are going to be a whole separate hate another oh, amen, day. brother. But where, like, there was a motherfucker who was bored enough, who had so little in his existence that he would walk up and down the houses every week and with a fucking ruler and measure how high the lawns were. And if someone's lawn was too high, he would make sure they get a citation. And best believe, I egged that motherfucker's house on Halloween. Because he was a bitch. <laughs> sure. I think he's dead now, too. But, you know, that's what happens when you're old and have nothing. Um, here's my... Here, here, here's just where I want to close on lawns. Okay. And I understand this has been a very kind of me guiding this journey more than usual kind of topic. No problems there, man. I know that my that this little podcast here, my little diatribe in it, is not likely to change much of anything. But if nothing else, I want any of you who are capable of just doing something about this, whether it's attending your homeowners association meetings and trolling them every single month by going, yeah, how about we abolish lawns <laughs> because they're an abomination? Uh-huh. Even just questioning in your own heart, why is it that we value our regional individuality so much? North Carolinians are proud of being from North Carolina. Arizonians, Californians, yeah. they are proud of these places, but they still all want their they still all want the fronts of their homes. To look like the shit that was on fucking Leave It to Beaver. I'll take. I'll turn that around the other way. Nobody from those states is proud of being in that state because they have, their because they are known for their suburbia. Yeah. Nobody in California is sitting here going, "I'm proud of my natural Californian lawn." Nobody in Arizona, even the people who meticulously mow that shit every Saturday, are talking about it. They're talking about the great majesty of the desert. Exactly. And it's just sitting here going, all right, we face real 
and substantial issues mm-hmm. with resource, with time, with identity. And getting rid of lawns is not going to solve all of them. But if you abolish lawns, if you get rid of lawns, if you embrace natural flora, if you divert those resources to more important places and you divorce this, you, you divorce your sense of worth and the idea of normalcy away from this uneducated, ignorant idea that goddamn Kentucky bluegrass is the American dream. You take one small step further away from the bullshit Mm -hmm. and you can sit here and go, all right, my water's going into a better place. My time is going into a better place. I'm cultivating better things. You know, it's, I'm not sitting here telling everyone that you should have a garden where you grow fucking food. Though if you can, that's awesome. I got friends who do that. You know, if I ever got a goddamn house out here, best believe that's the first thing I'm doing. But question these assumptions. You were very confused why I would hate a lawn. Why I would hate lawns in general. Yeah. I tell you I hate lawns, and I, I don't know what you were thinking. Maybe you were that I was going to say that I hate mowing them, even though I haven't mowed a lawn in years. I mean, that was kind of the thought. And, I mean, to the point I know you're leaning towards, I have never thought about this never once for a second. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, like, I walk my dog on the lawn of my apartment complex every fucking day. Mm. And I don't understand... Why I can't put my feet under proper North Carolina dirt, which is beautiful, and people travel here to see. So that is my hate. This notion that we all need this monocultural, monofloral horse shit. Mm. Horse shit would be better for the environment, actually. <laughs> like this, 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 this. This thing that just does not need to be, that is a holdover from middle class envy of aristocratic aesthetics. Mm. And I just want them gone. And I, at the very least, I just want to make all of you, before you waste a whole bunch of time and energy and thought and money into maintaining a fucking lawn and in maintaining an invasive species... Just ask yourself the question a second time. Fair enough. Okay, well, speaking of questions. Oh, that was unintentional, but I'll take it. Now is the part of the show where we turn it over to answering a relationship question. Indeed. You read the format, so I'll go ahead and do our question here. All right. This is from a 33-year-old female, about a 33-year-old female. My friend is being used for propaganda, and I don't know how to reach out to her about it. My friend got a really, really bad side effect that can happen with injections and is extremely rare. Unfortunately, the injection that gave her the side effect is the J&J COVID vaccine. She's been posting about it on her personal social media, but it looks like her posts are being shared by a very obvious propaganda blog. It calls the J&J a DNA vaccine, includes links to buy ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. There's a page about how masks are evil, etc. If this were a relatively unbiased news article, I would be less concerned, but it's definitely not. This blog is the second result when you search her name. 
She has a reasonably public life with businesses under her actual name. These are all below the propaganda piece in question in the search results. I want to reach out to her to make sure she's aware, working under the assumption that she doesn't know slash didn't authorize this, because it's both very harmful propaganda by itself and could hurt her business. I know I would not feel safe hiring her if I saw this and assumed it was okayed by her. I know we have differing political beliefs. She's Christian. I think she leans soft right. I'm queer, very far left pagan. So I'm afraid my default reaction is colored by politics. I'm pretty good in real life at talking to people from all backgrounds and persuasions usually, but I'm a bit stumped here. I think mostly it's because I'm afraid of losing her because she's my oldest friend and her parents are like second parents to me. I've known her since I was a couple of hours old. We've drifted apart for a couple of decades, but I am afraid to lose what is left. How should I approach this? Uh, parentheses, if it matters, I'm vaccinated, doing fine, and eagerly awaiting my booster. How do we want to name this person? Do we have examples of like couple of very good female friendships or people who've had shitty medical reactions i or... mean this might be a little bit of a stretch but i feel like this could be a modern day plot line of sex in the city which just got a second reboot it did who would be used who among the sex in the city women would be used for propaganda <laughs> <laughs> is this I mean, a Carrie and Samantha situation? Either Carrie and Samantha or speaking of hit shows from the 90s that have gotten a reboot, I could see this being like Rachel and Phoebe from Friends. Well, that sounds like we have a winner. Yeah, so then the... Phoebe would be the asker. I mean, out of the two of them, Phoebe's the one who would be... I could see much more easily being queer, far left, and pagan. Yes, but I also see Phoebe as more likely to be an anti-vaxxer. Uh, that's true. Uh, although Rachel and Monica actually knew each other for longer. So I might say that, how about the question asker is Monica. Okay. And the one with the business shit is Rachel. Sounds good. Okay, so we have Monica Geller slash Bing. But I'll go with Geller because I don't actually remember if she changes her life, name when she marries Chandler. Spoilers for friends, y'all. Mm. Monica Geller. And she's talking to Rachel. You know what probably happened? <laughs> Someone must have stolen my credit card. Uh <laughs> And sort of just put the receipt back in your pocket. <laughs> that is an excellent, excellent question. That is excellent. And, whew, all right, um, you wanna get started? Yeah, I mean, to hit the nail on the head, it sounds to me like Monica is maybe a little needlessly afraid of Rachel's reaction. Mm. You know, citing a couple of admittedly core differences in belief um you know religion and where they fall in the political spectrum i still feel like um it, it's being a little overly cautious to say i don't know what to do i don't know if i should tell my friend 
Monica, you should tell your friend, and I, I think you have reason to believe that your friend would not appreciate this. As, as much as it gets smaller every day, there is a there is a wide margin between soft right and full-on anti-vaxxer um, propagandist. And beyond that, I'll swing this around the other way. This is a threat to your friend's businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the first thing I keyed on is, you know, if you if your friend, if Rachel has a, a set, a couple of different small businesses, most of which are attached to her name, Rachel does not want the second hit when you Google Rachel's name to be a link to a clear far right anti-vax propaganda site. Even if Rachel supports that notion, it's bad business. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I I think you lead with the business angle. Yeah. Honestly, um Let's let's be very frank here. Um people can have bad reactions to a vaccine. Um this is a truth. I think it's a truth that uh a lot of pro vaccine people do not want to admit, not because they want to hide anything, but because they're legitimately afraid that it will delegitimize vaccination um i think i've talked about this on on the podcast before i actually have a friend who is immunocompromised and cannot receive vaccinations um and and she very flatly is like the vaccinations they attempted to give me as a child gave me terrible reactions because we did not understand that i was immunocompromised at the time and so she now granted she is the first one to be like Listen, all you motherfuckers who can be vaccinated, get motherfucking vaccinated because I can't be and you're putting me at risk. Right. And, you know, she also has a young child and is like, my child is too young to be vaccinated. So I'm in a household where it's three people and two of us are not vaccinated. It is a problem. So this is something that the discourse has been very bad at following and a lot of that is because of bad faith actors on the other side people who are are you familiar with what's going on with eric clapton right now andy oh god i you know i think i heard about this for a second and then just kind of forgot about it but didn't he get sued for something no eric clapton's just hella anti-vax right now and Mm. the thing of it is he got the vaccine and he had a bad reaction to it yeah yeah i think we've talked about that on the show yeah like he had a shitty reaction to the vaccine and that sucks that legitimately sucks for eric clapton like i feel bad about that for him but he has taken his personal experience and had a very unscientific response of going, well, I had a bad reaction to the vaccine, so the vaccine must be fucking bad. Sure. And that is the wrong angle. That is, the, the angle to take is, damn, I'm fucking unlucky. Your friend was fucking unlucky. If the angle of the businesses does not work, that is the real conversation that it sounds like you're afraid to have with her. That you might need to have with her. Because that is the truth of the matter. There's nothing wrong with the D- with the J&J vaccine. It is not as good. I, I got a J&J vaccine. It is not as effective as a Moderna or a Pfizer. But, and, and it does, it has been shown to carry certain risks that those two do not have 
particularly for um, women with certain blood clot issues, mm-hmm. uh, is my understanding. But at the end of the day, it's still, you know, more than 90-something percent effective, whereas Moderna and vaccine are like 97 and 98 percent effective. Like, it, it's a small difference. Yeah. Your friend got unlucky. Sometimes the great thing about friends is they can sit here and tell you, listen, you're on your bullshit right now and you don't understand that you were just kind of unlucky. A good friend is someone who should be able to tell you that. Now, you do say that you two have drifted apart for a while and it sounds like you're afraid of that getting worse. But if the business angle doesn't work, that might be the thing to do. Well, and I'm going to you know, advise kind of a tempering for Monica, I I get it in the sense of like, oh my God, this is my best friend. I don't want to lose them, especially in this day and age, especially with how isolating um, you know things can be in the hellscape pandemic that has become our day-to-day lives. But... If you are such good friends, even with the drifting apart, there's reason to believe that your words, even if they were not agreed with, would at least be met civilly and with a level of understanding. And if they aren't, fuck, cut the cord. Life's too short to sit there mourning. I mean, if that's the point, you are not losing the friendship. You are not throwing it away. The friendship has already withered and died on the vine, and you just are scared to check and corroborate that fact. Mm. You, know, you bring up how close you are with Rachel's parents. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and think the best of them and say, you know, if, if they are understanding people, there's a decent chance that that friendship and that relationship would not automatically be dissolved, even if the one with Rachel was. You know, there's there's no time for fear in this hellscape that has become our day-to-day lives. Not this kind of hemming and hawing, I know what I should do, but I'm scared to do it kind of thing. Especially when you have what I feel like is decent reason to believe that it will go okay. Yeah. And the last note that I would probably add to that, I think that's great advice from Andy, Um, you know, being prepared to let go of a friendship when it's, if you lose this friendship, it's not because you fucked up. It's because you did the right thing and sometimes doing the right thing has consequences. And the thing that I will say is if your friend is being weaponized to do this kind of evil and to be clear, She is being weaponized for evil. It is entirely possible that her posts, if her posts result in one person who might have gotten vaccinated or might have been careful and is instead not being careful and not getting vaccinated, that one person has the potential to do so much fucking harm. Yeah. Every time I think about unvaccinated people that I have a connection to, I think about the harm that they can cause because the fact is, as unvaccinated people, they are still interacting with others. They are still interacting with children or immunocompromised people like my friend. And 
they don't know the damage they're doing. And sometimes by not knowing the damage that they're doing, they feel absolved of it. Your friend might think, oh, well, I'm not doing anything other than posting my my story. It is not my responsibility that it gets picked up by another place. And, and you know what? That's a fair argument. It's not your friend's responsibility that her words are being weaponized. But if she knows her words are being weaponized and she continues to use them without keeping that context in mind, she does become an accessory. Yeah. And you cannot stop her. But the right thing to do is to at least try. So I feel like this is maybe the second or third time in a row where I've been sitting here saying this in a question, but you know the right thing to do. And the right thing to do may result in some shitty consequences. And it's still the right thing to do. Yeah. So do the right thing. That's, I mean, honestly, age-old advice. I think we've been saying that frequently for the entirety we've done the podcast. Oh, yeah. Every question basically comes down to... (laughs) It essentially comes down to, this is the right thing to do. Consent is important. People are shitty sometimes. If you want to know which of those three categories your relationship question falls under... The three genders. <laughs> uh, you can send those into lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise to read them and we promise to give our perfectly unqualified advice. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those. I'm told it helps people find the show. I haven't checked our numbers in like over a year, but you know, I I assume we're doing fine. I'm hopeful for growth in 2022. Uh, I'll show you growth in 2022. Uh, you can... (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, and subscribe and uh, follow us there. Uh, read all the shit that we're tweeting about, all the various topics we give updates on, and keep up with new episodes, and even send us your questions there if that's uh, your preferred format. Yeah, absolutely. You can also follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch um, sometimes very bad, sometimes very obscure, sometimes very sci-fi movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. At time of recording, our next one is about moon Nazis. You can find cult fiction everywhere that you can find love-hate relationship. And you can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at JovoCop2113, where I'm trying to do a daily update of how my Warhammer model painting is going. Ugh. Have you painted the ones I bought you for your birthday yet? No. Okay, looking forward to that one. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, uh, chess.com and lie chess at a underscore x underscore r u i z thanks for listening y'all it's almost 11 p.m i think we're gonna go to bed soon um but uh yeah as always please thank you for listening and tell your enemies Bye.